Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 13. And as you're turning there, I just got to tell you, I love singing with you people. This is, this, oh man, this is the highlight of my week. Just I love coming together as God's people, worshiping our risen Savior that we, that we adore. So thank you for blessing me today with your singing. Now we're going to look at the word of our God together. So turn to Genesis 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one that you're welcome to use in front of you. I'm not sure what page it is, but it's pretty near the front. So just first book of the Bible, look for the big number 13 and you're there. So Genesis 13, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, Your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we make our way through Genesis which if you're just joining us is what we're doing. We kind of picked back up in chapter 12 and we're making our way through this book. As we make our way through Genesis, one of the things that I hope you notice is how true to reality the Bible is. If you read the Bible very long, especially the book of Genesis, it becomes very clear very quickly that it's not some fairy tale about make-believe people that we can't relate to. 
Instead, it's about real people living real lives in the same real world as you and I. And two things in particular, I think, help us see that this week. First, we've got Abram. Now, two sermons ago, Abram was a hero, right? He was a hero for the way he trusted God and left everything to follow him in faith. Then last sermon, Abram was a complete failure. He failed to trust God. He selfishly thought sinning would help him get out of his problems. And he ended up making a bad situation far worse, especially for his wife. Now this week, humbled by his failure, Abram once again shows us what it looks like to walk by faith. And if you have been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, isn't that mixture of faith and failure something that we can all relate to? Some days, I mean, man, you're just cruising along the mountaintops of confidence in God. And then the very next day, you're stumbling along in the valley of unbelief. One minute, we're trusting God and his promises, and the next minute, we're relying on ourselves and our plans. And Abram is so helpful for us to learn from because just like us, he's a complicated blend of faith and failure. And he shows us how to keep walking with God even when we stumble. The other thing I think from our passage this week that rings so true to reality is the presence of conflict in the life of faith. Now, this is hopefully not a newsflash for you, but in case you didn't know, trusting God doesn't mean relationships with other people are always easy. In fact, they often get harder. And sometimes that conflict is even in our own families. In fact, it is fascinating to me how much family drama there is in the Bible. I mean, as we go through Genesis, it is filled with family strife. Why? Well, because the Bible's filled with real people who are real sinners and live in real families like you and me. And as we read about their conflict, it helps us learn how to navigate our own. Sometimes by telling us what not to do. I'm looking at you, Jacob, singling out one of your kids to give him the best thing while the others don't get it and playing favorites. And sometimes by showing us what we should do, how we ought to navigate conflict by doing it in faith, which Abraham does for us today. So today we're going to learn both about trusting promises and making peace. And we're going to see that the key is to walk by faith, not by sight. So here's our outline of where we're going this morning, if you got that slide. First, in verses 1 to 7, we're going to see conflict forces a choice. Then we're going to see an example of choosing by faith, then choosing by sight, and ultimately at the end, we're going to see faith's reward. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's look first at how conflict forces a choice. Look back at verses 1 to 4. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Okay, let's point out a couple things here. First, 
our author Moses intentionally connects what's about to happen in our story today with what just happened back in Egypt. Back in chapter 12, verse 10, we read this. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So the trial that sparked that whole saga in Egypt was a famine that it said was severe. Severe. Keep that word in mind. Now here in chapter 13, verse 2, we read, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Now that word for rich is the exact same word for severe in 12.10. Both the word means heavy or weighty. It's, it's connected to, but different than the word for glory. Like glory is a heaviness, a weightiness. And it's saying here, last time Abram's problem started because he faced a heavy lack. Right? There wasn't enough food. The famine, the lack was heavy. It was severe. Well, this time... His problem is caused by a heavy abundance. There's too much. So both having little, what we see at the beginning here is both having little and having much can lead us to trials of faith that tempt us not to trust God. Now, as we're going to see, thankfully, Abram does better with this trial than he did with the last one. Now, the other thing we notice here in these first opening verses is that Abram is literally coming back to the place of worship. Up in 12, 8 to 10, follow his little travel log here. He started his journey between Bethel and Ai, then traveled to the Negev, then ended up in Egypt. Now in chapter 13, Abram starts in Egypt, travels to the Negev, and ends up back in Bethel and Ai, where he was at the first. He's retracing his steps and returning to the place where he'd first called upon the name of the Lord. After his failure in Egypt, Abram is coming back to the altar that he'd built. He's renewing his devotion. It's, he's once again declaring that he trusts the Lord completely. And did you catch how our passage ends all the way down in verse 18? Drop your eyes down there. Abram moves, and what does he do? He builds another altar. In other words, he worships. So he worships at the front. He worships at the back. This whole episode we're meant to see is framed and bookended by worship. And the way Abram is going to interact with Lot in between, we're supposed to see it is shaped and informed by his worship of God and his trust in his word. That's why both of those scenes of worship there are the borders saying like, hey, everything that takes place in here is birthed out of worship. Okay, so so far we've just been setting the stage. We've got a lot of characters and places and things going on. We see Abram's back in the promised land. He's rich with livestock, gold and silver. So far, so good. Now let's get to the problem. Look down at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So this is, this is a bit unusual. What, what was their problem? Their problem was they had too much stuff. There, it was, the picture here is like, if you've ever seen movies like westerns of ranchers out, let's say, in Montana, 
fighting over grazing rights for their cattle. You've got these two mega ranchers trying to inhabit the same land. And so the ranch hands on both sides are arguing over who got what grass and who got what water to water their cattle. Between these ranch hands, you know, words were said, maybe punches were thrown. Things were starting to devolve and get ugly. And it was becoming painfully clear to Abram that there just wasn't room for the both of them. Notice the repetition in verse 6 where it tells us twice they couldn't dwell together. They couldn't dwell together. In other words, the wealth of the people was leading to strife and conflict. It wasn't hardship, it wasn't famine that was causing them to turn against each other. It was actually prosperity. More wealth and more possessions meant more was needed to manage it, protect it, and grow it. And when one person's prosperity collided with another's, it led to conflict. So here they are in the promised land. Keep in mind that this promised land is supposed to be home one day to a great nation. But right now, it's not even enough to support the two of them. Now, we're given a little clue as to one big reason why that probably is in verse 7. Just kind of dropped in there. They're not the only ones in the land. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also dwelling in the land. And because they'd probably gobbled up most of the land as the first come, first serve, their presence probably meant less land for Abram and his family. And because they've got this little sliver of land they're fighting over, it leads to a brewing conflict between Abram's men and Lot's. Okay, so that's our problem that we've got to resolve in our text today. There's not enough room for Abram and Lot to stay together. Tension is growing. Tempers are flaring. Something has to give. Conflict has forced a choice. So how would Abram respond? Look at verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Now, getting here, knowing what we know about the situation so far, and even like understanding a little bit about what was going on in this day and place, this is not what we would expect. Abram is older. He's the uncle. He's the head of the family. He's the one who received the promises. He's the one... Anything Lot has, he probably just got from piggybacking off of his uncle's wealth. So naturally, we might expect Abram here to appeal to his position or his status, which in that day and culture would have been undeniable. Like that's the trump card. You're the head of the family, you win. We might expect him to cling to the land as his rightful possession. To say, this is mine, Lot, go get your own. Think about it in other terms. Kids, this one's for you, okay? I'm sure adults can't relate to this at all. Kids, imagine your mom makes you an amazing chocolate cake for your birthday. Then the next day, after everybody has some, the next day there's only two slices left. One slice is huge. It's the, one of those pieces with lots of frosting and there's just all kinds of goodness just dripping off of it. 
Then there's the other slice, much smaller, severely lacking in both frosting and goodness. And just as you're about to choose, your little sister or your little brother comes into the kitchen right when you're about to get your piece, and they say, I want one too. Now, shouldn't you get the big piece? After all, you're the older one. You were there first. And after all, it's your birthday. Right? Makes sense to us. That's how we would operate. And that's kind of how we might have expected Abram to feel about the land here. To claim his right and to take what was rightfully his. But Abram wasn't motivated by maintaining his rights, but by making peace. We see this a few different ways in the text. Look, look here. First, notice who initiates this conversation in the first place. Abram doesn't wait for conflict to escalate and for Lot to come pounding on his door or something. like No, no, no. He goes to Lot to make peace before things get out of hand. And then notice, what's his goal in the conversation? He seeks peace, not his preference. He implores Lot. He says, let there be no strife between you and me. There's even, there's like a, a Hebrew word that doesn't get translated. It's like a please. It's an imploring, like, please, let there be no strife between you and me. That's his goal. That's why he's talking. He doesn't want anything to come between them. He cares more about protecting the relationship than he does about protecting his rights. Why? He says, for we're kinsmen. We're, we're brothers. We're, we shouldn't fight over something like this. We're family. So because Abram's goal was to make peace, he doesn't cling to his rights. In fact, he counted his status and his position as nothing. He was willing to give up what was rightfully his in order to make peace. So he let Lot choose. He was content with however it played out. See that? He says, Lot, that's fine. You choose left, I'll go right. Or, or you want, if you want right, I'll go left. Either way, totally fine. But how could Abram do this? I mean, how was he able to be so generous when like he had every reason to say like, no, this is mine. It's mine by right. It's mine by just obligation. This is what it should be. How could he be so generous? How could he engage in this conflict in such an unthreatened way? Because he trusted the Lord. In fact, when Abram let Lot choose, what he was really doing was letting God choose. He was entrusting himself to God's sovereign goodness, saying, however this works out, God, I know you'll keep your promise. You promised me the land, and so I don't need to cling to it. I can rest in your promise and not fight for what I think I deserve. I can let go of my rights because I'm holding on to your promise. And when we see Abram here, one of the things I think we're supposed to see is what a contrast to the Abram we saw last week in Egypt. Like, is this the same guy? In Egypt, Abram desperately tried to control things, right? He operates out of fear and, and worry. And so he tries to take things into his own hand and tries to selfishly manipulate the situation for his own protection and his own good. And now he does the total opposite. He puts someone else's interests above his own. He completely entrusts the outcome of Lot's choice to God. 
confident no matter what Lot chose, God's promise to him would not fail. Abram had learned that even when he messed things up last week, God kept his promises. So he probably rightly figures, well, if, if I can't mess up his promises, I don't think Lot can either. So because he's trusting in God's promise, Abram chooses by faith. I think there's two things we're meant to take away from this here. The first is, we are called to follow Abram's example. When conflict is brewing, you and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to be peacemakers. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hebrews 12, 14 calls us to strive for peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18 acknowledges peace is not always attainable, but it calls us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 14, 19 adds, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. The Bible is crystal clear. The calling on our lives is not to be instigators, not to be fighters, but to be peacemakers. So the question gets raised, how can we do that? How can we strive for peace with everyone? What's, what's the fuel in that, that keeps that engine going? Well, just like we saw with Abram, the key to making peace is believing promises. If I believe that God is for me, and will not withhold anything good from me, I don't need to cling to my rights in conflict. If I trust that God will work all things together for my good, I don't need to dig my heels in and make sure I get what I deserve. Instead, because I'm confident in my Father's love for me, I can seek first his kingdom and rest assured that all these other things I might need will be added unto me. I can deny myself and be generous toward others because I know it doesn't jeopardize what God promised me. I loved one quote I came across this week. The commentator said, There is room in God's plan for every man to follow his most generous impulses. Let me say that again. There is room in God's plan for every man to follow his most generous impulses. Meaning it's like, you don't need to worry, like, I think God wants to do me good, but what if I do too much good to someone else, that therefore some of my good is jeopardized? He's saying, you, you can't out-generous God. <laughs> you don't need to fear that. And in other words, Abram wasn't afraid to give up the land. He, he could sit there with open hands and say, go ahead, choose. Because he knew that God would give it to him, even if he gave it away a hundred times. Because he was confident he'd get the land not by his own plan or his own power or by jealously guarding what he wanted, but by trusting in the God who had already promised it to him. And when you and I are in conflict, we can be like Abram. We can lay down our rights and instead hold on to God's promises. Trusting those promises frees us to be people who make peace. That's one thing I think we're meant to see here. Here's the other thing we take from this part. Not only does Abram give us an example to follow in our peacemaking, but he also points us to the greatest peacemaker. Listen to how Colossians 1 describes Jesus. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Whoa. Now if there's ever been anybody in the history of existence who has the right to pursue his own good and do what he wants, it's Jesus. Did you hear what it said about him? Everything was made through him and for him. How do, you, how do you trump that? He's the firstborn of all creation. He's preeminent in everything. Surely when there was a conflict between us and him, he would probably take the best place, right? He would say, I'm the firstborn of all creation. I get first choice. I choose the good place. But wait. What does the next verse in Colossians 1 say? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see what's happening here? Even though Jesus had the loftiest status, the highest rank, the most honorable position, the greatest right, he chose to make peace with us. He didn't insist on his rights. Instead, he denied himself and laid them down. Philippians 2 says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clung to, to be insisted upon, to be relied on and taken advantage of, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, on that cross, Jesus made peace with you and me. He didn't wait for us to act. He didn't wait for things to get out of hand. He took the initiative in our conflict. He didn't look out for his own interests, but for the interests of others. He took on himself our sins that were the source of the conflict between us and God. And even though he never sinned, he willingly chose the worst place so that he might give us the best place. He took our place in judgment on the cross. That was the place that should have been ours by right. And he said, no, 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 I'll take that one. And he took our place in judgment on the cross so that he could give us his place of blessing that was his by right. And how did he do it? What was the fuel in his engine? By trusting the promises of his father. He knew that what God had promised him would happen. And so it was for the joy set before him. What joy? The joy that the father had promised him. That one day he would have an inheritance of nations. That he would be the preeminent one. He says for that joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus trusted his father and therefore he could let go of his rights and lay down his life to make peace with us because he knew 
that God would give him what he promised, even if it seemed like he gave it all away when he gave up his life. And the best part, friends, is this peace that Jesus, the peacemaker, won for us, it can be ours. We can be the recipients of that peace by trusting the promises of God in Jesus. Romans 5 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news, friends. This is how we can have peace. But we're going to circle back to this a little bit later. But let's go back to our text. Because we've been looking at Abram, but Lot also made a choice, right? So let's look at his choice in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Okay, so here we see another contrast. We see while Abram chose by faith, Lot chose by sight. When given the choice, when Abram says, choose the land, notice what he, Lot does. He lifts up his eyes to survey and study the land. He says, okay, well, let me see. And there's this kind of an implied in that phrase that he, he really is looking. I mean, he's evaluating. He's, he's running all the tests. He's weighing pros and cons. He's looking out. And what he sees is a land that was lush and fertile. It says it was well watered everywhere. And he makes two comparisons. He says it was like the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden with its four rivers coming out of it. There's just water in abundance. Or maybe closer to their experience, it was like Egypt with the Nile, which provided a constant supply of water. Remember, that's why they left in the famine to go to Egypt, because there was water and crops. No more worrying about famines or droughts. This land would offer him security and prosperity. But Lot was basing his choice only on what his eyes saw. It was sight, not faith, that guided his choice. It was also selfish and self-serving because he wanted to take the best and didn't really give a thought to what Abram would be left with or anybody else. So he chose the land that looked appealing to his eyes. Looked like a good choice on the surface, right? I mean, plenty of food, places for livestock to graze. It was desirable. It was practical. It was better. But below the surface, there are some massive red flags here. First, in verse 10, we get this ominous comment about Sodom and Gomorrah. Saying this was before the Lord destroyed them. So there's a foreshadowing. Why does he put that in there? Why does he need to say, kind of look ahead, a little sneak peek saying, they're going to get destroyed. Then in verse 11, look which direction Lot is traveling. East. East. Just like Adam and Eve traveled east when they had to leave the land of the garden. Just like Cain traveled east when he was forced away from the land. 
just like the tower builders in Babel were in the east. We're meant to hear east and something go, "Uh uh-oh. Lot is moving in the wrong direction. He's moving further from the promise. In fact, the land he settles in is outside the bounds of the promised land. Rather than trusting the promise, he trusted his perception. Lot saw something desirable. Something that would give him what he wanted and he took it for himself. Is this sounding familiar? This is the same pattern we've seen since the garden. Not trusting God's promises, but trusting our own ability to see what's best and taking it. Walking by sight and not by faith. Now Lot thinks he's choosing what's best because of how nice the land was and how it offered financial prosperity and security. But look what awaited him in Sodom in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now this might not seem too much as you read through, but this is actually one of the worst descriptions of people in the Bible. First, they're wicked. This is the same word we saw back in chapter 6, verse 5, where it said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, do you remember what happened to the wicked back in chapter 6? It didn't go well. They were destroyed in judgment by a flood. So already this calling them wicked tells us this doesn't bode well for this group of wicked men. But he doesn't just stop at wicked. He could have just said they're wicked and we'd have been like, that's bad news. He goes on. They're not just wicked, they're great sinners. And before you just gloss over that, that's a divinely inspired great. That means under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God wanted the word great in there to describe the magnitude, the awfulness, the depravity of this group of people's sin. This is a rare description in the Bible that seems to indicate whatever, whoever these people were, they were especially evil. And finally, they're sinners against the Lord, against Yahweh. Even though they're not in his land, even though they're not part of his people, they are accountable to him. And it's him they are sinning against. So we see all these people And like to us, there's a giant red flag. But when Lot looks out on his choice, he bases it only on what his eyes can see. He chose what he thought looked better, even though it veiled deeper problems. I love how one pastor, a man named Kent Hughes, put this. He said, Lot was the kind of man who, he would choose heaven over hell, right? Of course. But not heaven over earth. He's an example of believers who make decisions that offer to increase their family's prosperity or their comfort, but give no thought to what that decision will do to their soul or their children's soul. And we're going to see the fruit of this kind of thinking later as Lot's descendants become the enemies of God's people because he made a decision that in the moment he thought offered him prosperity, comfort, success, security, and he totally did not factor in what might this do to my soul to go dwell with a people who are great sinners, wicked. Lot thought he was making a good choice, but his choice was really leading him away from the Lord and towards sin and destruction because he chose by sight, 
not by faith. So the call to us here, friends, it's simple. You and I are called to look to the right things. 2 Corinthians 4 says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Lot chose things seen and found that to be the case. They were insecure, temporary, fleeting. Abram chose things unseen. So now let's see where that got him in our last section. Look with me at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So here we see faith's reward. The reward of choosing not by sight, but by faith. After Lot had packed up and gone and Abram was left with what in the moment seemed like the raw end of the deal, God speaks to Abram. And notice there's an intentional parallel here. Just like Lot had lifted up his eyes and seen the land, what does God now tell Abram? Lift up your eyes and look. One difference though, is Abram isn't told to choose which slice of land he wants. Do you want this slice or that slice? He's told, look north, south, east, west, and all of it, all of it, God will give to him. Abram gave up his choice of one piece of land, but now God gives him all that he can see. One writer compared it to, he said it'd be like Abram giving up his seat on the bus, and instead God says, okay, here's the keys to the bus. It's not, do you see the difference in magnitude? What Abram received is so much more than what he gave up. But not only that, remember Lot chose a place that was to soon be destroyed. What was seen was transient. But look at the end of verse 15. God will give this land to Abram and his offspring forever. By trusting God's promise, Abram received a possession that was greater than what he gave up and one that would last forever. Abram experienced what we read in 1 Peter 5 where it says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Abram did that. He humbled himself under God's mighty hand by letting go of his rights and holding on to God's promise. And now God was exalting him. God renewed and even expanded his promise of land to Abram. But it wasn't just the promise of land that God renewed. Before, the promise of offspring. It was there, but it was more implied when God promised to make him into a great nation. Okay, if I'm going to be a great nation, probably going to be offspring. But now, God makes it explicit. And he takes it to a whole new level. He tells Abram, your offspring will be as the dust 
of the earth. I mean, think about that. He says, go ahead, go outside, walk around, look at the dirt, start counting. Because if you can count it, then sure, you can count how many offspring. The point is you can't count that and then you can't count those. And I love how he ties it to the land. So after he tells Abram, he's like, go walk around all the land I'm giving you. Every step, imagine Abram, all he sees is dirt, dirt, dirt. But what has Abram seen? More descendants, more descendants, more descendants, more descendants. Every step through the land is a promise of that's how many descendants you'll have. This was the reward of faith, that he would have so many offspring, they couldn't even be counted. Which brings us back to Jesus. Earlier we said Jesus was the great peacemaker, the one who laid down his rights to make peace with us. He did that, we said, because he trusted God's promise. By faith, he humbled himself under God's mighty hand by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. So what was the reward of his faith? Let's go back to Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him. And not only that, listen to Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see what happened here? Like Abram, Jesus received a multitude that cannot be counted. A multitude from all the land, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And this whole multitude, this whole uncountable multitude are worshipers. And that's where Abram ends our passage in verse 18. In worship. He was able to make peace and trust the promises because he knew that the God who made the promises was faithful. And because God was his vision, he could walk by faith and not by sight. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a book in which you have written down these things that happened so long ago. So that we could learn not just about Abram and his walk of faith, but we can learn about his God. God, we do pray that you would make us peacemakers. That you would give us that impulse to not protect our rights, but to protect relationships. That we could be unthreatened in conflict, knowing that our God will give us what he's promised. And if we are confident that you will work all things for our good 
and you will withhold no good thing from us, we don't need to try to fight for it ourselves. So would you work that in us as a people, we pray. And God, we pray not just that we would be peacemakers, but we pray that we would trust your promises. Lord, would we be freed from all the things that lack of faith imprisons us in, and fear, insecurity, and scrambling to try to be in control. God, would we instead rest in the sovereign goodness of our God? We pray that you would do that in us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.